0: is APX. This is episode two, A Man Who Talked to Ghosts. At APX, I've done a series of interesting interviews. With my previous work, I worked on projects that sometimes almost seemed like science fiction. In fact, popular media tends to portray ARPA and DARPA as nearly science fiction. Take Spectral, for instance, the Netflix movie about a DARPA project involving military special forces taking down supernatural beings. As you heard in Episode 1, our subject is a more grounded one. But John Doe has been talking to ghosts. In today's episode, I'll be talking with John, and with a man who is tasked with investigating John after he retired from the ACERA program, when he finished his work on the APX project. But there's something you should know about the people that John Doe works with, like Prisoner 759. We've confirmed that the total number of extrajudicial prisoners is 845. That's strictly for prisoners accused of crimes in America, not the other countries that also take part in the program. This is Mike. Mike, if you don't mind, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got involved in APX.
1: Well, my name is Mike O'Donnell. I was a patrol officer in the late 1980s and the early 1990s, and I worked my way up to being a detective and then... There was this big Y2K scare, and I got more involved with task force work that involved federal agencies. And when that happened, I decided that I wanted to go and work for those federal agencies. Uh, Different times, I have worked closely with the U.S. Marshals Service, and I have worked with the Federal Bureau of Investigation. I've undergone a number of different types of investigative training. And the way that I get involved in this story is I have known some of the producers for a number of years. And I remember a couple of them from the days when they were editors on major publications and would call me to either confirm or to help to debunk a story that they were considering running. That's how I got involved in this particular project.
0: What was it like getting an assignment like this?
1: It was quite interesting. Um, When I was first called, I was asked to investigate whether there were potential problems running the story of a whistleblower on a program that the particular producer who called me that day said they were having trouble believing and verifying and confirming, and they just wanted to know if I can assist with that. And once they told me the nature of the program and I was able to verify to some degree that the program existed I have to say that my interest grew uh, 10 times that day.
0: Had you ever looked for a fugitive that was not a fugitive before?
1: The nature of hunting fugitives, to give it a flair for the dramatic, is a very interesting and artistic business. Uh, One thing that it's important to remember is that not all fugitives are going to be guilty parties. Um, everyone is afforded, at least in spirit, the idea that they are innocent until they are proven guilty by the courts. And since all of my work is prejudicial, I consider myself to be kind of a cog in the wheel. Um, I've taken a particular interest in behavioral science because of this work. But I don't tend to think that one person is more guilty than another until I'm presented with evidence that sort of turns my head that direction.
0: How did you begin your investigation into John Doe?
1: Well, the very first thing that I did was try to verify that he was really John Doe and he is and he he was at that time and that i will say made searching for him in the traditional ways more problematic than i suppose many i suppose many searches might go But my approach was to verify as many elements of John Doe's life that I could to give myself sort of cornerstones of fact. And then once I had established who he was and where he had been, I set about establishing where he might go. Um, You try to develop an idea of someone's digital footprint, and then they're their geographic location, and the reason for the particular patterns to their geographic location. And in that manner, John Doe was not all that different from many, many other people who have appeared on a list that I and others are asked to go and find. And so we were able to apply some traditional methods, but some of the things that we did were just verifying John Doe existed when and where and why and how. And then I set about making sure that the Asero program, as it's called, and APX existed, which was actually, in the face of it all, a much more difficult task to some degree.
0: How do you know Jennings?
1: Jennings and I go back a number of years He is one of the people that I was referencing who used to edit for more mainstream publications that would call me and ask me to comment or to verify or to turn his head in another direction related to stories he wanted to run from different writers, and we had developed a friendship that was primarily by phone when it began, and then uh, it expanded to email and to text message. And with this story, this, this was uh, the first time that I had uh, met him in person. Um, he began um, this story by sending me some of John Doe's tapes, and when I heard some of the voices, that were on these tapes and I realized that this was taking place outside of a setting related to law enforcement where some deception might have taken place either in the creation of the tapes themselves or in how it was presented that these different individuals had met their demise. One of the voices on the tapes has a very well-known serial criminal in the United States, he was executed. And at the time that he played me the tape, it would have been more than 30 years since that person would have died. So I wanted to know where the ghost of these voices was coming from, and I insisted that we began to meet in person, and that's pretty much the summation of how I know Jennings.
0: What was the biggest surprise in investigating the case of the missing man named John Doe for you personally?
1: I feel the need to preface this answer by saying not much surprises me. That having been said, the number of requests in terms of what was wanted to be known about John Doe, surprised me. I'm long retired. I do this for a very low rate. And I get suspicious when I feel like someone may be taking advantage of uh, my curiosity. Early on, it sort of felt like things might be going that way, but... um. Where this took me in terms of uh, countries, particularly the the country that I feel like uh, holds the key to what's happened to John Doe here, uh, that was probably the most surprising element of all of this. Although I don't believe that anything about the investigations I was asked to do here was particularly routine or normal. There was certainly nothing run-of-the-mill about what we were doing.
0: What was the biggest letdown?
1: I don't know that there was a letdown. Um, One of the things that was frustrating was there were, were a lot of stops and starts. At one point, there was something that happened to John Doe's wife. And although he had nothing to do with it It put everything on pause. We've um, started these interviews a number of times, and I've come back and I've gone from, um, you know, being in a a place with a lot of forward momentum to suddenly being at a standstill waiting to see if the project was even going to happen. And I have a particular interest in serial killers, and because of that, um, I, I, I did want to see the project go forward, so that was frustrating. But I do believe, and if I had to pinpoint a biggest letdown, it would be that the stops and starts maybe allowed for John Doe to become a missing person. And I feel like some of that, um, for no particular reason, might be my fault.
0: Do you think that you will ever find John Doe?
1: Oh, one of us will. I. And um, in all that I can reveal right now, I believe we actually know where John Doe is Uh, in terms of uh, a city. And that can be helpful, but it's still a very large target. And this is a fairly large city they were talking about. I definitely have tracked him down to a country um, and I believe that uh, with the number of people that have gotten involved behind the scenes who have a personal interest in this story, I absolutely believe that John Doe will be found. In what condition he found, I don't think I could I don't think I could give you a good answer there, but I do think he'll be found.
0: In your opinion, do you think that John Doe is a criminal?
1: Oh, absolutely not. Uh, John Doe is a whistleblower. He was put in an impossible situation, um, somehow managed to keep up with his sort of day-to-day interest and routines and did everything he could to try and get through a situation where he was trying to blow the whistle. He wanted to try and but shine some sunlight onto this program. He's, he's definitely, he's not a criminal. And what's interesting about that is, you know, one of the other folks involved here is, an, is a legal expert in matters. They're similar to John Doe's. And he does not believe that John Doe even violated the disclosure agreements he'd signed, let alone anything related to his clearance or releasing classified material or even... uh, uh, There's nothing he's done to break any U.S. laws. If we we look at this from a human rights perspective, his participation there might make things a bit more complex. But no, I don't believe he's a criminal.
0: Why do you think that John Doe is on
1: the run. Well, at the risk of uh, sounding like I'm just negating everything you're saying, which I apologize for. I'm so sorry that that is the way that this is going. That's, not the key. That's genuinely not the case. I don't believe that John Doe is on the run. One of the things that happens with missing persons, particularly missing persons who are males of um, either prime age or... Um, Just after prime age, uh, John Doe's in his 40s here. I believe that um, sometimes they go off the grid and sometimes things happen to them when they go off the grid. And that can be for any number of reasons. Um, You start to lose the traditional motives that someone would have to make someone else go missing. Love, money, and revenge kind of go out the window. Uh, when it's uh, someone doing the things that that John Doe was doing, I think that John Doe had a shock. Um, he was literally talking to people for, um, you know, roughly ten years, give or take, where every waking moment and working moment in his life was dealing with sort of the worst of the worst of humanity, and. Mm-hmm. We had been made to feel that a lot of these people were deceased, and suddenly he's not only facing them, but he's expected to, to interview them and to compile reports and to, to close cases um, on the backs of this information. Uh, he gets no credit for this. Um, not that he was seeking credit, but you know that would be make the job all that more difficult. Um, but I'm not entirely certain that John Doe is on the run from that circumstance, I think the situation may have been from what I can tell and what I believe and what I've investigated to attempt to confirm independently of anything I'm told about this project or from any single source in John Doe's life. I believe that John Doe went down a dark alley, metaphorically speaking, that At the end of that dark alley, there was something big and evil waiting for him. And the question becomes, did he face the evil and take it down, or did he find himself in a situation where the evil took him down? I believe that's where we are in time. I don't believe that John Doe is on the run. Not from anything good.
0: Shifting back to the APX program to wrap up for today, how did you feel knowing that the ACERA project existed and had the APX program underneath it? And what was your reaction to a program like that and its existence and its financing?
1: I don't think I was surprised at all. Let me... Let me turn the tables on your hair. You've been asking me a lot of questions. Let me ask you um, uh, the same thing. What, what did you think of APX?
0: There was a time when I would have said that I don't find anything that a government program does shocking, but I do believe that this one has surprised me. Um, the scope, the magnitude... Um, and the overall goals are—it's quite interesting um, going through when I was able to dig up that's unclassified about John Doe in terms of his government service. There's a point in time where it looks like he's just going to prison, and then I found out later that the nature of his quote time in prison wasn't related to criminal convictions at all. It was related to him recruiting these subjects. And the way that uh from top to bottom, you know start to finish, he would recruit them, determine their viability for this program, and plan their death, and fool these authorities and uh, it was it was very intricate and, and it was quite fascinating and Then, when I started seeing the budget line items on on how much this program has cost and how long it's run. I was uh, I was flabbergasted but there's an element of this that you know I knew would be true if you you know hearing about serial killers is something I remember from my childhood in a particular way and we don't hear about them anymore um and I've wondered uh some of these tapes seem to confirm that like it's not that we're not catching them it's that they're not making it into prisons and um the the two Sort of lead voices that I heard on the tapes that John Doe had provided Jennings were, were quite fascinating to me. Um, they're very different. One, as you mentioned, one of them was executed in 1989, and then the other, the other more prominent voice was, he allegedly died, in his cell by his own hand before he could be convicted of anything, in 2012, and a lot of the things that happened in between, we hear about these killers dying. But, um, you know, we, didn't, we don't put a lot of context to that, and uh, not a lot of thought goes into explaining it to the public.
1: Uh, there was a time when you would hear about serial killers on the evening news every single night. And then there was a time where you began to hear about serial killers dying, whether they died before they had been arrested even some of them were rumored to have been killed by their victims, but there's there's quite a few. If you think about the statistics of it all, these people that we can confirm, we know that they that are serial killers, and you look at how they're treated in the media, things changed. And when they changed, uh, it was a really big deal. And to think the small number of serial killers that there were, suddenly they all killed themselves? It seems a little absurd.
0: You know, there's some ways that I talk about this, and I feel like I'm talking about alien life forms or some big conspiracy. Um, and again, it's you know, if you hadn't seen it, you wouldn't believe it. But having seen it, it's it's still difficult to believe it. I don't like the idea of tax dollars being spent this way. I don't know how I feel about this program overall. There's no way that, in my opinion, uh, meaningful people are applying scientific methods to the information that's being collected, and you know, just speculating on the on the whole the situation as a whole. It seems like something out of a science fiction tale come to life. And, you know, I've, I've had these thoughts for years. My thoughts on serial killers in the mainstream are not new. And now, looking at this, I wonder if, if we know the whole story. And I, I say that from the perspective of, I have this theory. The minute you find out about something that was once secret, there's something more secret waiting around the bed that in your lifetime you'll never hear about. And that is sort of a terrible way to look at things, but it is one of the ways that that I look at situations like this. um, And, and I do take you know, finding someone like John Doe and protecting them very seriously because he can give us quite an interesting window into the soul of this program's creation and all of the projects that we may not yet know about.
1: I, I think that's a very well-said way to, to put it.
0: In terms of this portion of the interviews, is there anything I haven't asked you that you feel like is important for the audience to know?
1: I think the only other thing I would add at this point is that the search for John Doe is ongoing and that this story... Um is an evolving story and an important story and that um, we are very much working towards bringing a resolution to it all.
0: Thank you so much for joining me today. I feel like it's very important to have these interviews and I can't thank you enough for helping me to put this story out there.
1: And thank you for adding me and thank you for putting all of this together. I look forward to seeing Uh, how it all releases and, and what I sound like and what you sound like.
0: Before we wrap up today, I wanted to talk to John Doe one more time about some of the things he'd told me about the conditions of the interviews and the nature of his work and his daily routine. What is your everyday work life like?
2: Oh, I don't. I don't have much of a daily routine. A lot of what I do doesn't take place like in the facility. Um, that's kind of odd to say. Uh, the way it works right now is I uh, primarily go to uh, Portsmouth, Norfolk, Virginia area, and uh, depending on where they are, I get a uh, either a helicopter or an airplane to the nearest locale and then a her- helicopter. I spend a lot of time prepping. That's that's um, like reading the, the sort of dossiers or the uh, the files that are held on these people and everything that is known about them compared to what one knew about them. That's, uh, you know, it's a lot of prep work. It's a lot of research. It's not that different from, you know, it's a lot of creative jobs out there. You have to plan and develop the plan and then do the background work And then, you go and do the actual uh, interviews, which are not, uh, they're not, it's actually pretty cushy for them. It's not super uh, uh, comfortable for me, but I I don't mind it. I I like the work.
0: Where are the prisoners being held?
2: All right. So this is the part that gets dicey. Uh, This all takes place on a boat. It's basically a giant cruise ship. Uh, It's an interesting cruise ship, but it's a cruise ship nonetheless. Uh, that's why the you know the they play, play planes and helicopters and helicopters and planes to get there. You land on this boat as it moves. It's massive. Um, we're gonna get more into like how you could find the boat. I know that uh, that was something that Jennings talked to me about when we started doing these interviews. Was how would we track it down? There are services out there that could track this boat. Um, it's not flagged to the U.S. and there's not a lot of cruise ships that are not flagged to the U.S. Believe it or not. Like it's pretty easy to to notate that way. I know uh, investigators were put on that early on to kind of verify my story, and I was okay with that.
0: What is it like interviewing someone who has long been considered dead in the mainstream media? Uh,
2: interviewing somebody who's considered long dead is interesting. You get to ask questions that, like people say, uh, people say, like, "What if we could ask them this?" That's been interesting. Um, uh, now you got to remember, a lot of these guys are older. Like you know, these especially the early number of people and people that have passed away, which I don't even know how that process works. And I've had a lot of questions about it. Is when someone dies, when someone dies on the boat, what happens to them? Like where do they go? Like what do they do with them? Are they just cremating them? Or are they doing burials at sea? But I've never been told, and I've sort of been made to feel like I'm not supposed to ask those questions.
0: How do you recruit subjects to APX? Uh,
2: the subject of recruitment is probably not one of the sub. The subject of recruitment is probably not one of my finer moments. Um, depending on who they are and where they are, you're uh, I, you're, you're either catching them right before the cops do, or you're going into a prison to get them after the cops. After the cops have caught them, I'm not really proud of what I've done to these people over time. And particularly with some of the ones, I did some things that I am now positive. I uh, would be heavily scrutinized in terms of whether I broke the law or not to bring some of these subjects into the APX program. But that's where I started out when I was doing the field work. There were people that, um, on paper, it looks like they killed themselves one way or another, and that's not really what happened. There's a lot that went into, uh, you know, it's been asked, like, is this other deceptive practices? And the answer is yes, there are definitely deceptive practices, and a lot goes into verifying the fingerprints and the DNA and getting the person to swap, the body swap happening. That's been a huge deal. you know, you're going into jails in some places and prisons in other places. And some places you're intercepting nine one one calls. You're doing a lot to um, to track these people down and and to sort of make their you know, their grand finale in their life, whatever it is. You're you know that we were responsible for a lot of those. And when you hear about it and you think to yourself, well, that. The most frequent thing is that person killed himself. That's not necessarily what happened. And, you know, uh, are we responsible for that? Absolutely. That's our recruitment process, and that's what we do.
0: What was the scariest thing about your job?
2: <laughs> the, the scariest thing about this job is, well, first of all, like, it's all scary. <laughs> you know, the people that you're dealing with aren't good. Uh, I'm not scared of them, per se. I have wondered, like, what if such-and-such such got loose? We had escapes in the past. That's been a major problem. And the way that they're handled is kind of a major problem. It, there's a there's an isolation factor to all of this. It shouldn't be discounted that you know, when you're doing this, um, it, you don't feel all warm and fuzzy about your accomplishments. It, honestly, like... The the things that we pull out the most stops with related to this project are bad things. It's, you know, you're trying to find closure. and You're trying to find the light and the dark. And honestly, for the most part, it kind of feels like it's all dark. I spend a lot of days wondering, you know, is it possible that there just is no light? It's interesting to be able to talk to ghosts. I think that people uh, overestimate what's been said in the mainstream media about some of these folks. It's um, it's a unique job. I will say that.
0: I'm Beth Mauer. This is APX, season one, seven five nine. This podcast is brought to you by True Crime Think Tank and True Crime Excess. Our executive producers are Margaret Elizabeth, John Walters, and Jamie B. APX is written and directed by your host, Beth Maurer, with assistance from Jennings John. Editing by Marlo Boyd, Alex Bryant, and Beth Maurer. Special thanks to Miguel Santos, Arson Sergoff, Hayden Madison, and Roger Kamini for their assistance with this story please consider following us or giving us a rating to help us get notice in the crowd. For more information after this limited series concludes, check out truecrimexs.com. Donations or sponsorship inquiries for future seasons of APX may be directed to True Crime XS or to Jennings John. We are also sponsored by the John Doe Family Foundation. We hope you enjoyed today's show, and as always, thank you for listening.
2: I don't, I don't actually remember what we were doing, but I had uh, – I so I, I own a home. My family lives in, in roughly the area where I own that home. But I had an extended series of things that happened where I ended up having to get a corporate apartment. And it wasn't as corporate as you think. Like I've had those before where – you kind of go into a, a downtown area close to where you're going to be and they'll just rent you something out and it's a furnished apartment and, you know, you've got all the services that you could use. But this one wasn't like that. It was in a more rural area. And uh, it was very nice, though. It was like this gigantic farmhouse sitting on, I, I don't know how many acres of land, maybe 15, and had a little a pond on the property and it was adjacent to a lake. And, you know, it was really beautiful. And I liked living there. This is many years ago when this happened. Um, it was close to a city. And that city is where I would, you know, get on airplanes and go places. And But this was a nice place to decompress. And it was during a particularly stressful time in my life that this happened, um, that I was living here. And um, I wasn't married at the time. Um, I was – I did – i my my kid was around, and I had like a really structured schedule with them, and then I have a st- structured work schedule. but we had a home invasion um because the city that we were next to the crime kind of spills out and even though this was in a a more rural area, so you know there's kind of suburbs that surround the city, and then you know you get on the highway, and this was like one of the first towns that you would come to and unfortunately, even though it was rural, it was a mile and a half or so off the highway. And um, I was the way that it was working was I was staying and in, in, I guess it would be called an in-law suite. It was like above the house, um, particularly uh, above the garage and like the kitchen area of the house. But it was very nice. Um, the people who lived there were amazing and um, they were gone during the day. In fact, I, I think the, the husband that lived there, I think he was traveling many miles away. He worked on a, this crazy situation out in um, the Washington, in Washington state where they were disposing of a lot of uh, chemical weapons and things there. And uh, he was a project manager on that, which is one of the reasons I had gotten this apartment because I felt like that would be a relatively safe place. And um, his wife stayed there full time. at the time she had been um, diagnosed as, as having lung cancer and it took her very fast. Um, It was all around kind of a a sad situation, but this home evasion occurred. These guys kicked in the back door and uh, they made their way into into the apartment that I've been staying in, and they took uh, my laptop. It was a huge deal. It it got me in so much trouble. Um, I was in the home at the time. It had this little area that was between the apartment and the house where – I would call it like a sunroom. It wasn't really, but it had a a really big, nice open skylight area. And I don't know that technically I was supposed to go in there because it it did have a locked door, but it, it had a door that could lock between it and the rest of the house. And if you went out, you came out into like the guest room in the main part of the house where I definitely was not renting anything there, but I had a good relationship with these people and I would go into that little the room was. It had a couch in it, and then a little area I could s- set up my computer. And this particular <coughs> this particular day, I had not taken my laptop in there with me, and it had just been a terrible week. And I went into that room, and I just crashed. Um, honestly, I went in there with like a, a six pack of beer, and I just passed out. And I woke up in the middle of the home invasion happening, and um. It uh, that was a pretty terrible experience. Uh, it was it was very well organized. It was a bunch of guys, and I panicked. I didn't know what to do. I've never been in a situation like that, where, it, you know, you wake up and just because of the nature of the room that I was in, um, when I stepped into that room, for some reason, I always locked both doors. So I would lock the door. That the main house people couldn't come in and surprise me or I couldn't surprise them being in there. And they would just think the door was locked and they'd have to go find the key. But when, when I hear the door rattling, I knew it was time to go back in my apartment. But I'd also lock the door from my apartment in case the cleaning crew came up. They didn't think to come into the space. Um, and it was a real simple lock. You could put a bobby pin in and just turn it. And so I woke up. It was in the middle of this home invasion? They got my laptop, and I—I I heard the doors rattling, and like it was all this like it was a really confusing moment in time. But I, I walked um, back into that room, and I guess they had all just gone down the stairs, and the stairs were like these weird attic-type stairs, it's kind of creepy to go up and down, and I just missed. But I was like, okay, maybe I can get the laptop back. So I I grabbed a handgun that I had in in my bedside table and checked it and uh, made sure I had ammunition. And I ran down the stairs. And these kids were literally – they were literally teenagers pulling off this home invasion. And it threw me because I, I confronted one of them in the driveway. I guess the oldest must have been 16 because they clearly had driven out here. They had two vehicles they had driven them. But most of these were, like, they they looked very, very young. And I stepped out there uh, to have a conversation with them. I really just wanted the laptop back. I wasn't going to mess with anything else, And I could see, like, these boot prints on the door. And it had a big circle driveway that went around this farmhouse. And I ran down the, like, came out the door and went to the right, thinking I would meet them at the base of the driveway. The first car almost hit me, and from the second car There was this kid, and I remember looking up and thinking, oh, my God, they're so young. And that's really the only thought I had. There's a lot of adrenaline pumping, and it was a really terrible scenario. And then I was like, oh, shit, this kid's got a gun, and he's pointing it at me. They pulled the trigger, and I heard it go off, and I had no idea that I'd been hit until after the fact. And I looked down, and I was like, oh, my God, I'm bleeding.
0: And um, it was terrifying. Next time on APX. Well, it was actually quite interesting to me how we went about their finest story. And when we got to the end of it all, we were able to, or essentially we were able to track the pains that were made between the programs when we were able to track the ship in the port of call, really made a mistake. It was, it was actually, well, to be frank, it was because they hired international employees. So when we sat down and we looked at the Ninerfest, which we were able to find not from the ship itself, but from the different ports of call. we could find who had gone through customs, where. We were able to make a pre-substantial list that we felt like was important in uh, the verification of what John Doe was telling us.